That was a good one, wasn't it? Makes you kind of want to do a little jig there. Oh, I, like, I like that song. Very, very well done. Well, we're super excited that you're here with us uh, this Sunday morning. So thank you for coming. Looking forward to seeing what God has in store through his word today. We're going to be in Luke chapter 10, looking at verses 38 to 42. So if you have your Bibles and would like to turn there, if you need a Bible, just raise your hand and one of our ushers will be glad to give you one to keep or to borrow. Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 42. But in the meantime, as you're turning there, I'd like you just to imagine for a moment the one special thing in your life that you'd like to be invited to. Maybe that's a trip to a White House party, or maybe that's a behind-the-scenes tour of the Buckingham Palace, or maybe that's to a child's wedding, or maybe, I know, coming up here pretty quick, a vacation to a nice tropical island, or maybe it's a nine-course buffet prepared by the best chef in the world. But just imagine being there in the presence of that, and you know, your presence has been requested to come in and really just participate in that. Maybe it's a, a seat with the president or uh, just something front and center. You know, you've been invited to really participate, but there's a problem. You're distracted. So you're, uh, you know, instead of going in and participating, um, you're thinking about, uh, did I turn the stove off at home? Or I wonder what my dog is doing right now. Or where's the photographer at? And, and you miss the moment when your child actually says, I do. You know, those distractions. I think you know what I'm talking about right there. I believe that all of us can relate to distractions in some way. In some senses, at some point, we've all missed the main point. Uh, maybe you're like me and you were sent to go to the store to pick up one thing. And you go to the store and you go all the way through it, and, you know, you come back and you get in your car and you're driving home and then it clicks. Oh no, I forgot that. <laughs> Got to turn around and go back. I have the 10 other things that I didn't need, but I forgot the one thing that I came for. So the danger that our text will show us today is that of distraction. And I'm not talking today about just distractions in general, uh, because we don't need Jesus for that. But what I'm talking about is the distraction of actually missing the main thing, Jesus, for all kinds of other things, even good things. We often scrounge for spiritual crumbs when we could have the bread of life himself. So if you have your Bibles and you're in chapter 10 in Luke, verses 38 to 2, please stand with us for the reading of God's Word. Starting from verse 38. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered, in, uh, entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. You may be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we begin. Our dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I know that even as we come here this morning, we all are in danger of missing the main thing. 
We can have so many distractions running through our mind of what we're doing after church or what our Monday is going to bring or what our future will bring. So many worries and cares that we can miss sitting at your feet and hearing your word. So in the midst of the busyness of life, in the midst of, of, of everything you've called us to do, Lord, may we not miss the most important thing. I pray that we can all come away feasting from the bread of life and clinging to him for every word he has to say. Please give us the grace and strength to do this. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So I've mentioned uh, in the beginning that it's very easy for us to become distracted and to miss the main thing. And even in our text today, it's entirely possible to leave here missing the main thing. And so just to be clear, someone approached me first service, the main thing that I'm saying today is not don't clean your house, okay? <laughs> so if that's the conclusion you draw, that's not what we're saying. Probably better listen to it again. The main point that we're saying today is this, that in order for us to love God and others well, we must begin by listening to the words of Jesus. So in order for us to love God and others well, we must begin by listening to the words of Jesus. That's the main point today. So it's easy to read this story of Mary and Martha and to come away uh, thinking that a life of meditation, of, of just reflecting on the Lord is far superior to a life of service, to a life of doing anything. And many people throughout church history have unfortunately fallen into this trap. They've withdrawn from society uh, and just really lived in, in communities kind of isolated from everybody else, just where they can do nothing but read and pray, thinking that that is superior than being uh, engaged with the rest of culture and, and doing any kind of service. So that's not Luke's point. We don't want to fall into that trap. So I don't think we necessarily do a lot better with this story either. We probably feel like we have to choose between one or the other, either spending time with the Lord or serving. It's like an either-or kind of a thing, and, and maybe you feel like you're torn between the two of those. Oh, no, I'm serving. Well, I guess that means it's just less holy and less spiritual than, than sitting at the feet of Jesus. So in order for us to understand what Luke is saying today, we want to look at more context. So right before this account, if you look back, and the story that came before this, you see a, probably a well-known story, the story of the Samaritan. Uh, he's actually not called good in the story, although we call him that. Uh, that's how we, we refer to it, the good Samaritan. But in that account, a, a lawyer goes to Jesus and asks for clarification on who his neighbor is. Now, it would be nice if he was doing this because he was genuinely wondering, like, Lord, I just want to serve you well, but I just got to make sure, like, who is my neighbor here? I really need to know. But that's really not his point, not really why he's doing it. Uh, he's doing it because he wants to demonstrate his own righteousness. So this lawyer goes to Jesus, uh, really expecting Jesus to tell him, well, your neighbor is your, your spouse or your friend or that, that person that lives in close proximity to you that you get along with real well. That's your neighbor. So then in turn, he could go to Jesus, put his arm around him, and I think I'm doing that pretty well, Lord, and expect Jesus to give him a little pat on the back, like, keep it up, brother. You're, you're there. You're on your way to heaven. Uh, good job. So he gets a pretty surprising answer in this story that really challenges him. So Jesus, uh, while he is looking for the minimum 
obedience that's required, he finds that Jesus is looking for total obedience. Jesus doesn't put limits on love. And so he sees that we have no right to set limits on who it is we will love or help. So the parable of the Samaritan and this story about Martha and Mary are placed in close uh, proximity to each other for this reason to help clarify things. So it helps correct us from falling into error about serving and following God. So I really believe in a good sense the church needs the story of the Samaritan. You've maybe heard of the 20-80 rule where 20% of the people do 80% of the work. Uh, And really in churches in general, that happens to be true. Um, Churches are are just struggling to to find volunteers in a lot of areas, you know, like children's ministry or, or just wherever. And even outside the walls of the church, uh, American Christians are often so busy with their lives that they really have or really think they have little time to serve others. So I believe that one weakness of American Christianity also is the lack of stepping into messy people's lives. We want a clean kind of Christianity where we don't have to get our hands dirty. We'd rather send those messy folks off to, to someone else to take care of, to, to hire them out. And and the parable that Jesus tells about the Samaritan is a reminder that we can't pick and choose whose lives we want to step into. It's not enough just to love people who are just like us. So by linking the parable of the Samaritan to this story here today, Jesus is reminding us that serving is not a bad thing. Serving is not a bad thing. Jesus loves servants. He loves it when his people serve. If you remember, uh, a little bit later in Luke, in chapter 22, verses 26 to 27, Jesus is talking about this dispute that is rising among his, his gent- uh, the disciples, and, and they're arguing who is the greatest. And so Jesus says to them, uh, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the one who serves. For who is the greater? The one who reclines at table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. So if you notice there, Jesus really flips the ladder of success. The disciples uh, come wanting a title, and what Jesus gives them is a towel. The disciples are really determining success by how many people serve them, And Jesus flips it around to help them look at how well are they serving others. He challenges them to serve, not by guilt, but by pointing them to his sacrificial work on the cross, his death, the best example of service and love. So this could be a good time for all of us to really reflect on our view of serving. Are there ways in which we're failing to practically love others, like the Levite or the priests, instead of Um, coming alongside of them? Do we settle for throwing up a quick prayer to someone in need instead of actually getting in their life and helping them? Are we too busy with the hustle and bustle of the holidays or life that we just turn the other direction when there's a need? So by linking these two two accounts together, uh, Luke is correcting his, his readers who would want to draw the conclusion that serving is less spiritual or less holy than sitting at the feet of Jesus. But then again, Luke also corrects those who would try to divorce serving from the context of the gospel. Many organizations and people today do this. 
In other words, they simply use this story of the Good Samaritan as the motivation, but there's no gospel with it. It just becomes go out and serve, go out and do, but they don't need Jesus or the gospel to do that. It just becomes another human-centered effort to earn favor with God. Now, most of you here, I'm sure, are not outrightly attempting to do that, to divorce serving from the context of the gospel, but it's not uncommon for us to do this in even very subtle ways, even, even ways we might not know about. And as we'll see today with Martha, we can get so caught up in the doing and the serving that we lose sight of the one that we're doing it for. So this story today serves as a correction so that we don't fall into that ditch either. So in order for us to go and do likewise, like Jesus tells the lawyer, we first has to have to sit at the feet of Jesus and listen to him. So let's look at our first point then from verses 38 to 39. And there, if you remember, we read, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. So our first point is this. If we want to serve Christ well, we must begin by sitting at his feet. You want to serve Christ well? Good. Then begin by sitting at his feet. So here our story starts, Jesus entering into this village. Uh, we're not told the name of it, but he connects up with two women, Martha and Mary. These are the, the two women we read about in John. Uh, their brother is Lazarus. Uh, they're close friends with Jesus. Uh, and Martha is inviting Jesus into the house, so we would assume that this is Martha's house there. And in this culture, hospitality was extremely important, much more so than in our culture. Uh, it was a duty and a privilege. And the more honored a person was, the more it was expected that you would show them greater hospitality. It would be very offensive uh, for someone, you know, to, to be there and you don't show them hospitality. And a person would also have the, really the responsibility of accepting that hospitality. Again, it's helpful to remember that there weren't any hotels or inns like we have today. Okay, so there's no uh, Motel 6 or Holiday Inn Express or Hampton Inn that people can stay at. The inns were very um, run down, uh, filled with bad food and bed bugs and dangerous people. They were often used as brothels and children of prostitution were working in them in many cases. So how did they, they show hospitality in this culture? Well, for one, if a stranger came to your door, you were not to keep them waiting long. You were to welcome them in very quickly. Uh, an entire city was judged by the way they demonstrated hospitality to strangers. Nobody wanted to be the weak link, right? So if, if I hear, for example, you know, somebody went to Kyle's house and he served him this horrible food and made him stay outside in the cold, like, we would look bad because of that, and we didn't want that. So we would, you know, have a, have a few words to say about Kyle for him doing that. So it's very important to be very hospitable in this culture. And guests were treated like family. Um, typically, you know, you would, they would just expect you to, to keep them for three days, in some cases a week, and even in some cases a couple weeks. And you didn't complain. You did it, you did it readily. You did it heartily. So for the Jews, showing hospitality was the most basic way of showing love. The, the more hosp hospitality that was shown, the more love that was shown. And Abraham, who was 
the greatest example of a hospitable person, as you see back in Genesis 18, was really held up as their example of this. So with that background in mind about the importance of hospitality, I hope that Martha's actions make more sense to you, okay? Why it mattered so much to her that, that this went well for Jesus to come. She, of all people, wouldn't have wanted anything to ruin his stay. She wouldn't have wanted the food to be cold or, um, you know, the, the chair he sat in to, to be uncomfortable or, or anything like that. She would have really wanted him to feel welcome there. I like to think of Martha as Martha before Martha Stewart, you know, maybe a, a Martha Stewart version 1.0. I mean, th this lady knows about hospitality and she is ready for Jesus here and she's got a plan. Any of you relate to that? Any of you perhaps had a plan for having people uh, coming over and how things should go during that time? Of course you have, of course you have. You know, we all do to some degree. And what do we do? We expect that other people will jump in and help us, our, our spouse, our kids, and, and what happens though when that doesn't happen? You know how it works, it, things don't go so well. So Martha has a plan, but what's unusual about this is where is Mary? So I mean, in this culture, it would have been expected that Mary is there helping her, helping serve the food, helping welcome Jesus. But as we read in those first couple of verses, uh, Mary's not there, at least doing those things. Where, where is she? She's in a very strange spot, at least for women in this particular culture. Now, Luke doesn't tell us anything about how Mary looks, what kind of clothes she has on. What's more important is what Mary is doing. She's sitting at the Lord's feet and listening to him, listening to his teaching. In this culture, uh, men and women didn't intermingle much even in the context of their own home. There were spaces for men and spaces for women, and women typically didn't go into the spaces of men unless they, they were asked to or, or unless there was a need to. And so it would have been very surprising for readers to learn that Mary has entered really into this space of a man. Now, in the previous account, Luke has thrown us a curveball, and he's talked about the Samaritan. Oh, it's the Samaritan who stepped in and helped, not the Jew. Here, he throws us another one, a woman sitting at the feet of Jesus in the place of men. Whoa, what is going on there? Again, typically women or Gentiles or Samaritans were not permitted at the feet of Jewish rabbis. But don't you just love how Jesus isn't afraid to include all kinds of people in his redemptive plan? He doesn't turn her away. He, he welcomes her there. Now, you may think that expression, sitting at the feet of, sounds a little funny. I mean, when we use that expression, we tend to think of it literally. Like if I'm sitting at the feet of someone, I mean, I'm right there, like literally sitting at their feet. But that's not what he means here. He's, he's talking about this context of discipleship. It's an expression that means to study with that person or become their disciple. So if you remember Paul, it says he was brought up at the feet of Gamaliel, in Acts 22.3, and both uh, Jews and Gentiles would be very familiar with this concept of discipleship, learning from a teacher. Nobody would have expected growth or learning apart from carefully listening to a teacher, and that's exactly what Mary is doing. The tense of the verb hearing here indicates that Mary is absorbing Christ's word, absorbing 
soaking it in. The words just aren't bouncing off her eardrums. She is really soaking Christ's words in. So Mary here is really the model disciple. She knows that Christ's words are the most important words, the most necessary words that she needs to hear and understand so that she can faithfully serve Him. And she's even willing to set aside the expectations and judgments from other people so she can sit at the feet of Jesus and take in His Word. So before we go on further, I just want to uh, make a few comments about this, a couple things in particular. So first, discipleship isn't just for men. Discipleship is not just for men. Jesus cared that Mary taught her, and uh, he, he cared that Mary was taught. He included her. So I'm concerned in general that there's maybe this idea out there that discipleship and doctrine are just for men. Let's throw the ladies some theological lucky charms and serve the men those deep doctrinal truths that stake. No, doctrine and discipleship, those are not just for men. Those are for women too. So we shouldn't operate or think that women are incapable of learning or understanding like men are and just settle for giving them some chicken soup for the soul. No, they need discipleship and, and spiritual growth just as much as men do. Secondly, every follower of Christ, every man and woman, is called to discipleship. A disciple, by definition, is a follower of Christ. A disciple has to learn from his teacher. If you remember, the Great Commission in Matthew 28 is a call to discipleship. And all of us have been commanded to participate in that. Sadly, I think in, in some senses the American church can be a little bit better at making functional Pharisees than it is at making disciples. Instead of the great commission, we've turned it into the great omission. So as a church, we need to reclaim our calling to make disciples. Making disciples includes, more than anything else, sitting at the feet of Jesus to hear his word. But given the importance of hearing the words of Jesus... Isn't it sad as to how many things distract us from this? Martha, as we'll see, is really no different than we are. And that leads us to our second point. Beware of distractions and missing the main thing. So notice in verse 40, But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. So Martha gets distracted, and notice what she's distracted by, serving, serving. Now, as we've previously seen, uh, Luke has shown us that serving in and of itself is not a bad thing. So again, please don't draw the conclusion that serving is a bad thing, and therefore, I don't need to serve. That's not what Luke is saying here. So the problem is not service, the problem is the distraction. She got distracted and missed the main thing. Uh, I think the good news, though, is I'm sure that there's no one like Martha here today, is there? I'm sure that none of you have ever become distracted by even good things and missed the main point. A am I right on that? Oh, okay, good, good. Uh, maybe I'm just the only one then. Have you ever been maybe so focused on, for example, making the place so clean for guests that you miss the main focus of the evening, actually enjoying them? Anybody? I think that's probably the case for many of us. So Martha becomes overwhelmed by the tasks in front of her. 
Instead of prioritizing and trusting that Jesus will give her, to, give her the grace to do all that he's called her to do and, and allow her to trust in him, she sinfully tries to take matters into her own hands. So what's she do? Well, she comes to Jesus expecting fully that he's going to take her side. So she, she's going to try to manipulate Jesus into taking her side to do what she wants. Instead of listening to Christ's words, she's actually coming to give Jesus some words of her own. So as we look at how Martha goes wrong, I'd just like you to think about and make connections to your own life. How might I go wrong in the same way? Let's first begin with her heart, those heart desires, how they manifest themselves through her words and her actions. I think we too often focus on the behavior and miss the fact that even good desires can go off track. So again, in what ways could we go off track like Martha did? Well, first, Martha comes to Jesus with the complaint that Mary isn't helping me. She believes that she needs Mary to make this hospitality successful. I need my sister to help me. And again, we've seen how important hospitality is in this culture. Uh, and with all the people coming to your house, I, I think if Jesus were coming over, uh, I think if we knew Jesus were coming over after church, we all would probably spend more time than normal to make sure things were ready for him, right? I, th I think we would. So we can't fault Martha for wanting to treat Jesus well. Now, even though Martha addresses Jesus as Lord, it's really Mary who points to and acknowledges the lordship of Jesus far better. She's sitting at his feet. Her actions there really point to Christ's lordship. Martha comes complaining uh, to Jesus, e even admonishing Jesus for not doing something about the problem. Now, we might think that that takes some nerve. I would never, I would just never go to Jesus and, and try to correct him for, for doing anything. Or would we? Or, or would we? But whenever we do this, uh, we, we miss the main thing. So maybe we would say something like this, though. Lord, don't you realize how much I've got going on in my life right now? I just don't have time for anything else to go wrong. I, I need my spouse. I, I need my child. I need my coworker. I need my boss to, to get it, to get in line and help me out here. Lord, can't you do something about, can't you change my spouse to, to be more loving or, or to act like this? Can't you change my child to be more obedient? Sound familiar? So instead of, uh, so Martha, her fundamental mistake becomes that she tries to use Jesus as means to her end instead of seeing Jesus as her ultimate end. Whenever we do that, whenever we try to make Jesus as means to our end, we miss the main thing, the glorious Christ. So Jesus was never intended to be means to another end, or in other words, a tool that people use to get what they want. And whenever we do this, it will not end well for us because Jesus refuses to be a pawn in our chess game. So what, Mar what Martha wanted, help, was not a bad thing, but it became wrong when it was elevated to a need. I need Mary to help me. Then she begins to demand, tell her to help me. So this is the progression of idolatry. A desire, even a good desire, becomes 
uh, a demand becomes a need and then a demand. I have the right to what I want. Now, Jesus has a lot to say about our needs-driven culture. And even if you think to yourself, keep, keep a mental tally tomorrow or today, how many times do you think to yourself, I need this? I'd like you to pay attention to what you start putting behind that last word, I need. And let's see what, how it aligns with our one true need. So see if any of these sound familiar to you. The need or the right to be free from intense problems or pressures. Ever think that way? The, the need to hold or express personal opinions. The need to be respected, appreciated, or considered important. The need to be loved or accepted. The need to have good health or medical care. The need to have a boyfriend or a spouse or a girlfriend. The need to have a loving spouse. The need to have obedient children. The need to retire comfortably. And we could go on and on and on, but, but you catch those things? How many times do we say to ourselves the same thing? I need this, I need this, I need this. And then just in the case of Martha, we begin acting out as if that really is a true need that we have. So all of us, like Martha, have desires that turn into what we believe are needs. For Martha, she needed a sister who was there to help. She needed a house that was just right for Jesus. She needed to look good for Jesus. And she even needed Jesus to help her get those things. But despite what Martha thought she needed, she missed her real need. And that was the words of Jesus. So the wonder of Jesus is that he doesn't give us what we need or what we think we need. He gives us what we actually need. While the help is nice, while there's nothing wrong with a good place to have for Jesus to visit, Martha had a greater need. And in the love of Jesus, he was going to show her that need. So what about you? In what ways might you be missing the main thing, your true need, Jesus, because you're distracted by all kinds of other things, even good things? Just think through your typical day. How many items are on your to-do list? What kind of priority do you put on those things? Are you more concerned about what other people think about the cleanliness of your house than what Jesus thinks about how you clean your house? Are you more concerned with how organized your life is than what Jesus thinks of your organization? Are you more concerned with how much money you have in the bank or with how Jesus views the way you treat that money in the bank? Are you more concerned with the efficiency by which you operate or with the way you treat people that Jesus puts in your way? So Martha is the most excellent housekeeper by all kinds of standards. I mean, she does know what it takes. But the irony in this is that she actually fails because she makes it all about herself instead of the Lord. Martha's service ironically pulls her away from the Lord rather than to the Lord. So I don't think it's uncommon for what's happened with Martha to happen with us. I mean, has there ever been a time in your life when, when you've actually been in some kind of ministry, some kind of service toward others, and you've realized that it's no longer about Jesus anymore? It's actually about yourself. You've missed the main point. Or maybe you get caught, so caught up in who's bringing what 
and how the room is set up, and if anybody will notice the dust on the ceiling fan, that you actually miss the Lord and what He wants to accomplish in the midst of that. So notice how distractions and taking our focus off of our true need lead to worry and concern about all kinds of other things. So Jesus says to her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. So taking focus off Christ and our true need leads us to worry and anxiety about all kinds of other things. We worry and fret because we don't think we're going to get or keep those other needs. So I'd like you to do something for a moment. Just on your paper there, write down, stop and write down exactly what it is today that's worrying or troubling you. So I think I got a spot there on your paper. Just, just write that down. What is that thing? What's worrying you or troubling you today? And as you're doing that, ask yourself this question, what kind of need, what kind of need is my worry revealing? Is, it true, is this need truly my main need, the person of Jesus? How is this need distracting me from my real need? So again, all kinds of things that we think we need distract us from our one true real need. And one reason that we struggle spiritually is that we allow even good things to distract us from our main need. So in 1 Timothy 2.4, Paul says this, no soldier gets entangled with civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. So just imagine with me for a moment that you are a soldier. Your responsibility, your duty is to guard a bridge uh, to a nearby town. And as you're guarding this bridge, uh, you notice that there's a, a garage sale going up right beside you. And, and the ladies are carrying out all kinds of boxes and, and heavy things and setting them up on tables. And they're just really struggling. And you start thinking to yourself, it would be a good thing for me to go help them out, right? Good thing. Just go help them out. A quick, put up some tables, carry out some boxes. Did you do a good thing? Yeah, I mean, you did a good thing, but what was the problem with that? You took your eye off the main thing. You missed it. You're supposed to be guarding your bridge, and you got caught up in even something that was good. And as a result, you failed in it. And think about how often we do that. If the main thing is Jesus, how often we quickly take our eyes off Him and, and even get involved in good things but miss the main thing. What comes out in Martha's heart then toward Mary is resentment. So Mary isn't serving in the way that Martha thinks she should. And this attitude of resentment can be more common with us than we think. We look down on people who aren't serving or doing things with the same level of commitment or excitement that we have. Oh, I just wish people would get it together better. I don't understand why they come with it, you know. But why are they not passionate about this like I am? Oh, those Christians, they just were more like Jesus. They, they would be where I'm at, right? I mean, we don't necessarily say it like that, but that's what we can think in our, in our hearts. And we resent people for not helping. So the more that people fail to meet our expectations, the more we can resent them. The longer this goes on, the more distracted from the Lord we become. Now in verse 41, Jesus responds, but instead of correcting Mary, uh, Mary, just get back in the kitchen where ladies belong. Get, go away from my feet. You, you can catch that another time. Go, go help your sister. Jesus doesn't do that. He actually rebukes Martha. 
So Martha, unlike Mary, has missed the main thing. But even in the midst of Christ's rebuke, don't you just love how gracious and gentle Jesus is? So Jesus could have given Martha a good old Bible thumping. He really could have taken the word to, he could have taken her to the woodshed. He had every right to, but he doesn't. In love, he points Martha back to the main thing, himself. And that's what we see in our third point. Sitting at the feet of Jesus in the face of distractions is not easy, but good. Sitting at the feet of Jesus in the face of distractions is not easy, but good. And so he tells her, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. So it can sound as if Jesus is just not interested in helping Martha. And that's actually not the case. Jesus is going to help Martha, but get this, he's going to help Martha on his terms, not on her terms. So I know this could sound difficult to some of you, but Jesus is not interested in helping you on your own terms. He's not. He's not going to tell your spouse to get their act in gear and be the kind of person that they're supposed to be. He's not going to tell your child to shape it up and fall in line. He's not going to do it on your terms. If that's the kind of Jesus you want, the kind of Jesus that does things on your terms to give you an easier path in life, you're not looking at the biblical Jesus. No question, Jesus wants to help us, but it's going to be on his terms. And on Christ's terms is the best place that it could be. See, Jesus has too much to offer that we should be settling for scraps. Jesus is the good portion. All the while, Martha has been talking to Jesus and telling him what to do instead of listening to Jesus. Now it's time for her to set aside these cares and concerns of her life and simply sit at the feet of him and listen to his word. Now you might be wondering, okay, you've been talking about the good portion here. What exactly is that? Uh, What's that mean that Jesus is the good portion? And how is that good news to Martha's like myself or, or like the person sitting beside me? Well, this concept of the Lord being our portion goes all the way back to the Old Testament. Um, And and you may hear about it more uh, coming up in a few chapters in Joshua. Like in chapter 18, uh, we're told that the Levites are not given any land because the Lord is their portion. Throughout the Psalms, we read that the greatest uh, possession in life is not land or items or position, but fellowship with the Lord. Now, we often look to things like possessions or position or pleasures as the good portion, sadly, even a little bit better than Jesus. And these things do offer something to us, but they can never satisfy us in the way that Jesus can. Some things give us health and wealth, but not peace. Other things give us peace, but don't bring glory to God. Other things give us busyness, but not satisfaction. Other things give us rest, but not joy. So only Jesus himself is the good portion. It's not something apart from or outside of Jesus that he brings. It's himself. Outside or apart from Jesus, there's nothing that's an absolute need in our life. Nothing else can satisfy us, can satisfy the desires of our soul than Jesus. 
So let me try to explain this in another way. So instead of looking at the good portion as a possession, like something Jesus gives us, think about it in terms of proximity, a closeness to Jesus. That is the good portion. So the good portion is a closeness to Jesus that you can experience and you can even grow in. The good portion is the capacity to love Jesus, to appreciate Jesus, and to find satisfaction in Jesus. So I believe that one thing that makes it difficult for us to sit down at the feet of Jesus and enjoy the good portion is that we'd rather have the good portion be something, uh, something, that, something tangible, something we can touch, something we can see, something we can grasp in our hands or, or experience. And so the question we're wondering is, yes, I mean, I want Jesus to be the good portion. I, I know he is, but how does that change the way I view my messy house? How does that change the way I view my spouse who doesn't appreciate me, respect me? How does it change the way I, I view life if I don't have a spouse or children? Instead of measuring success by what I accomplish, how is Jesus as the good portion? How, how does that change the way I, I measure success? Those are the kind of questions that we're all wrestling through. So Josh, you may be asking, how is Jesus as the good portion better than an experience or something tangible that I could see or put my hands on? How is he, how is he better than a, a status in life that I could ascribe to? See, I could really believe that Jesus is the good portion and, and better than all those things. I mean, if I really could believe that, then yeah, I agree. I would be sitting at the feet of Jesus a lot more, but I just don't know how to do this. Those are the questions I think we're wrestling with. And so the big gap comes in me telling you that Jesus is the good portion and you actually experiencing it and believing it yourself. So I want to try to do that. So for one, Jesus as the good portion means that he's an enjoyment that you feel and experience the more that you taste of him. So imagine with me, if right after church you were served, you know, you went for lunch and there was a great steak right in front of you. You probably could smell that right now. Probably wondering when I'm going to finish so you can go try one. And, and that smell just, just comes in and, and it's right there in front of you. Yes, there's a level of enjoyment and satisfaction by looking at that and smelling it, but nothing like actually taking bites of it, eating it slowly. So it's the same way with a friend. There's a difference between a friend and a, and a real friend, someone you know a little bit compared to someone you know who is actually there for you, who will listen to you, who will help you. So Jesus as the good portion means that there's an enjoyment, there's a satisfaction that you experience the more you taste of him. It means there's a beauty that you're growing to see. You're growing to see a beauty in his attributes, his works, his power, his love, his grace. We all in some form or fashion are looking for beauty in all kinds of things. And sin in some senses is attractive. We perceive that there's a beauty in it. But none of these things benefit us spiritually. There's a beauty in Christ that's good for us. We can feast our eyes on him. We can gaze on him without ever having to, to worry or, or question, is this good for me? He always is. And we'll grow in amazement 
as we realize that the beauty of Jesus is something on our behalf. He's transforming us to be more like Him. Jesus as our good portion also means that there's a safety in Him that you won't find anywhere else. Mary chose what couldn't be taken away from her. But Martha, on the other hand, chose what she couldn't keep. Listen, you, you can't keep your house clean. And those of you with kids, you know that. That's probably true for like 10 minutes, right? Can't even do it for 10 minutes. You, you can't do that. You can't keep your 401k from losing value. You can't keep all of your plates spinning without losing something. But in Jesus, you have what you can never lose. Now, I'm not going to pretend it's easy for us to sit at the feet of Jesus amidst all the distractions of life, amidst all the cares and concerns, and value Him above everything else. But how do we do this? Well, first, it's good to recognize our disordered values. Recognize our disordered values. So Martha got her values out of whack. She put more importance in the cleaning and the preparing the house than she did her heart. And anytime we put our values out of place, expect that there will be problems in life. So how might you know? How might you be able to tell if some values or some desires are getting out of place in your life? Well, first, pay attention to what you will sin to get or what you will sin if you don't get. Those are some good clues to help you identify values or desires that have gotten out of place. Secondly, remind yourself that you're not God. You're not God. Okay? You can't do everything. And with that, we don't have infinite limits. You know, we can't do everything around us. We can't do all that we think that we should do in the way that we want to do and fulfill every responsibility that we think we have and please every person around us. You just can't do that, and God didn't intend for you to do that. So God calls us to fulfill our responsibilities and to trust Him with everything else. So maybe today is a good day for you to lay down all of those responsibilities and cares that really belong to the Lord Put those down. Let him take care of those. He can do it a lot better than we can. And then to set our mind on things above. So Martha had an earthly mindset. She was only seeing these temporal concerns of life. What she needed and what we needed was a good dose of the heavenly. Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 to 4 provide us with this, with a good reset. Set our minds on things above. It's ultimately not going to matter how clean your house is. It's ultimately not going to matter that you got all the details of your schedule perfectly ordered. It's not going to ultimately matter that your life is progressing as quickly as you think it should be, that other people aren't viewing you in the way that you think that they should. What matters more than that is you've been raised with Christ, that Christ is seated at the right hand of God on your behalf that you've been raised with Christ, that your life is hidden with Christ in God, and that Christ Himself is your life, that God is for you and will never leave or forsake you, and that He is, a, he is our inheritance who will never be snatched away from us. And grasp His discipline, grasp His grace to discipline our time. Grasp His grace to discipline our time. God's grace enables us to have self-control even with our time. So God cares about our time. 
He cares about the, the time that He's given us. And I believe that one of the big reasons why we don't do well at sitting at the feet of Jesus is because of the way we fail to discipline our time. So everything you say yes to is one other thing that you can't say yes to. Every minute that you spend on social media is one minute that you can't spend on matters of eternal value. So again, most of our problem, I believe, is that we lack discipline in our time. We often say, I just don't have time, but what we really mean is it's just not as much of a priority as something else is. What if I told you that I had a million dollars for you? or that all-inclusive vacation to the Caribbean islands. It's, it's just waiting for you. I need you to do one thing, though. You know, run around the church a hundred times. Would you do it? I bet I'd have a lot of takers. You know, for the, for the right price, if you want it bad enough, you will do whatever it takes to get it, right? That's how we operate. The same is true with things of the Lord. If we want to spend more time at the feet of Jesus, we want to organize our schedule to make it happen. And then finally, delighting ourselves in the depth of Christ. Delighting ourselves in the depth of Christ. So let's circle back to where we started in the beginning. In the beginning, I, I mentioned that we often settle for spiritual crumbs when we could have the bread of life himself. All our distractions are like junk food. They're pulling us away from, from, the, from the true true food, Jesus. So coming to sit at the, at the feet of Jesus is coming to sit at a feast. His word is a delicious feast. This is a feast that Jesus has prepared for you because of his love for you. He's inviting you to come and to feast on his words. So where are you today? Are you distracted by the billion things you have to do? Are you scrounging for spiritual crumbs while a feast is sitting there ready for you? Are you worried and concerned about the daily things of life? Does even the thought of sitting at the feet of Jesus and taking in his word sound like an impossibility in the midst of your raging mind? Well, the cure for all of this is the gospel. The gospel changes our distractions into attraction. The gospel changes our worry and our unrest into peace and confident trust. The gospel changes our self-pity into selfless service. So to the Marthas out there, if there are any here today, sitting at the feet of Jesus is not just another to-do that you put on your list. Hearing his word is not just one more thing we do for him. It's an opportunity for him to do something for us. And this is the good portion, Jesus and his grace for you. How do you respond? Come, come and run to the feast he has for you. Let us pray that we can do that. So our dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that our Lord Jesus is the good portion. And I know today that even among the distractions and the cares and concerns of life that all of us have, that we have this opportunity daily to sit at, the, sit at your feet and to hear your word. So I pray today, Lord, for all of us Marthas who become so distracted by service that we don't miss the main thing, and that's you, Lord Jesus. We pray that in your love you will correct us, that you will point us back to you, that you will show us the wonder and, and the joy of sitting at your feet and taking in your word. I pray today that you will help us, to, again, to keep the main thing the main thing, and that is you, Lord Jesus. 
So I pray that we can serve well, first by listening to your words, and then by going by your grace. Please help us. Thank you for all you do. In your name we pray. Amen. If you're able, I'd invite you to stand as we respond to the word and glorying in our Savior.
the greatest of all delights. Your power is unequal, your love beyond our heights. No greater sacrifice than when you lay down your life. We join the song of angels who praise you day and night. Glorious Christ. What I like about our uh, benediction here is that it comes in the context from Lamentations of a time of intense turmoil and trouble, showing that uh, God is the good portion is possible even when our world is turned upside down. So let's say this together as we end here. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. So that's our prayer for you today. You are dismissed.